morning, guys. Welcome to Woods Edge Community Church. Like Pastor Jeff introduced, my name is Phil Kwan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I am so excited to get to worship with you this morning. I'm excited to get to share with you a little bit of my life and my story, but most importantly, I'm excited to share with you from God's Word. And this morning especially, I'm excited to be here, not least of which because this is honestly the first time in weeks that I've been meaningfully out of my house. And I think a lot of us can understand that feeling right now. Uh, it's hard to believe that it has been weeks, over a month, I think five or six weeks, that this is the way that we have been gathering together as a church. Uh, just this past week, in fact, uh, our journey group was gathering on Zoom online, and one of our friends was mentioning that she was starting to get used to living life this way. And she was also explaining that she kind of hated it. She was really frustrated by that. And I totally understood that. It totally makes sense. This is not at all uh, the optimal way for us to live life. But if I could be honest with you guys this morning, the truth is, is that for Brandy and I, this COVID-19 crisis has actually not been the most a pressing thing in our lives. It high, we've only very recently started to grapple with the reality of it. And it's because uh, four or five weeks ago when the whole world was starting to lock down because of the virus, Brandy and I, we were actually 38, 39 weeks pregnant. So while everyone was, uh, was sheltering in place, we were eagerly anticipating the arrival of our son. We have three daughters at home. It's our first boy. We were very excited. When uh, all of you guys were uh, rushing to grocery stores and fighting each other for that last roll of toilet paper or last bottle of hand sanitizer, we were actually thinking about diapers and baby wipes. And sure enough, on March 21st, Saturday morning, we went into labor and we went to uh, St. Luke's Hospital in the Woodlands and delivered our baby boy shepherd, Bruce Kwan. And uh, for those of you guys who have kids and you've experienced this, you know there's this moment that happens. A few afters after the baby is born, after all of the doctors and nurses leave the room, after all of the monitors stop beeping, after all of the screaming and the crying stops, after all of the I need an epidural right now stops, there's this moment where everything is quiet, where there is peace, where there's joy where you can sit quietly and hold your sleeping baby for the first time and everything is as it should be. And for Brandy and I, we got to experience that. The whole rest of the world might have been in a panic and in confusion, but in that hospital room, everything was right. Everything was good. It was perfect. And for Brandy and I, we were eager to get home to welcome our son to, and introduce him to our three daughters uh, we were excited to be whole again as a family. But what happened uh, on that second day as we were packing up our things, getting ready to be discharged from the hospital, the nurses took Shepard aside to run him through the last few tests, the last few screens, a hearing screen, visual screen, and the last one, his CCHD screening, his critical, car, uh, critical congenital heart defect screen, the nurses paused because they saw something strange on the monitor. They were confused. In fact, they were so confused that they actually brought in a second machine uh, because they thought the first one was broken. But sure enough, there was something very, very wrong with our boy. So in an instant, we were rushed out of our hospital room to the NICU on the floor. Our neonatologist came 
uh, to talk with us and told us that our baby had a life-threatening heart defect, that he was dying. And we needed to be transferred out of this hospital to Texas Children's Hospital downtown to their cardiovascular ICU. And in an instant, our peace and our joy was shattered and replaced with fear, anxiety, uncertainty, and isolation. We rushed to Texas Children's um, where we finally found the room where Shepard was being uh, taken care of and dozens and dozens of doctors and nurses and medical professionals were swarming all around this two-day-old baby, hooking him up to lines, getting IVs, setting up monitors to try and preserve his life and figure out what was going on. And in the midst of that, Brandy and I, we were just standing there in the corner holding each other crying out to God and just crying because we didn't know what to do. We didn't know what was going on. All we could do was cry. It was in that moment that a nurse actually came up to us and told us that because of the pandemic, the hospital's visitation visitor policy was changing and that we would have to decide right then and there which of us was going to stay in the hospital with our baby boy and which of us was going to have to leave. And it wasn't like we could switch off. It wasn't one at a time. It was only one of us. And that's a decision I pray no parent ever has to make which one of us was going to stay with Shepard, which one of us was going to go home. We decided that Brandy was going to stay in the hospital with our baby boy indefinitely. We had no idea when this was going to be over. She was going to stay in the hospital. And the decision was that I was going to go home to take care of our three girls alone. And can I tell you, when I left that hospital, got in my car and drove home, I wept the entire way. I wept because I was afraid. I wept because I was anxious. I wept because I was uncertain. I felt helpless and I felt so very alone. And if I could be totally real, I wept because I didn't know if I was ever going to see my son again. I was in crisis. Our family was in crisis. And the truth is that right now, all of us understand this feeling of crisis because of how drastically our world changed. There was a day back in March where everything was at peace. Everything was right. Everything was at least familiar. And then all of a sudden, in an instant, everything changed. And what was understandable was now replaced for so many with fear, anxiety, uncertainty, and isolation. We're all feeling this. Many of us acutely and that's the funny thing about crisis when it's out there somewhere far away it's a headline in a newspaper or it's a talking point in a passing conversation but now it has become intensely intensely personal the fear of a sickness the fear of loneliness and depression the reality of financial insecurity this is where we're at today and the question we have to ask ourselves is, is there rescue for us? Is there anyone who can save us from this darkness? And for those of us who are Christ followers or who are Christians, the question we have to ask ourselves is what are we supposed to do? 
And we hear that we're supposed to trust God and love people, but how are we supposed to do that when we feel so isolated, when we feel like we have had so much taken from us? How are we supposed to love people? How are we supposed to engage a desperate world in the confinement of our circumstances? That is what we're talking about today. Today, we're going to be in the book of Ruth chapter 2. Last week, we celebrated Easter together as we looked at the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to be jumping all the way back in time into the Old Testament as we look at the story of a man who has the heart of God and engaged the crisis of his world. Ruth chapter 2. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Ruth, a real quick overview. The story of Ruth is actually a story about a family, a family with a woman named Naomi who left her hometown to go to a foreign country in the time of economic crisis. She and her husband and her two sons moved. And while they were trying to cut a life there in this foreign country, they were hit with another personal crisis as Naomi's husband and sons died. With nothing left, Naomi decides to return back to her hometown. And as she's going, one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, decides to show her this strange love. This love that the Old Testament will call a hesed love. Hesed love means loyal, self-sacrificing, steadfast, long-suffering, at my cost for your benefit. That's the kind of love that Ruth demonstrates to Naomi. And these two women, as they travel back to Naomi's hometown, are in desperate trouble. In this intensely patriarchal society, these women had no job, no means, no resources, no money, no land, no property, nothing that could take care of them. And in that moment, we see this young woman, Ruth, decide that she isn't just going to let herself and her mother-in-law die on the street, she's going to go out and actually try and do something to provide. And that's where we meet our main character for today as Ruth wanders into a stranger's field to try and scavenge for scraps to feed herself and Naomi. In verse 4 we read, and behold Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers the Lord be with you and they answered the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Here we meet our main character, Boaz. Boaz, the hometown hero of Bethlehem, who's returning back to his property, to his land. And he greets his community, his workers, the people who are uh, working in his fields with a greeting from the Lord. We see that he's a man who trusts God. And through uh, the economic crisis that Bethlehem was experiencing, he had continued to be steadfast in his faith in God. And as he greets the people that are working with him and for him, he notices a young woman who's, who's scavenging, who is gleaning in the fields, and he asks about her. And what's interesting about that moment is that it tells us that not only does Boaz trust God, but he cares for his community. He cares for his people. The dozens, if not hundreds of people who would have been working in those fields, he recognized them enough to see a woman that he didn't know. And he wanted to understand her circumstances. 
She was someone who was poor in desperate times. And he asks for her story. You see, in this case, we see that Boaz isn't just someone who trusts God and loves people. He's a man who trusts God and sees people. And as he starts to ask for Ruth's story, he listens intently to where she was at. He listens intently about her need. And so our first point is that we see that Boaz's godly character recognizes someone else's need. Boaz listens carefully and begins to respond respond to Ruth and Naomi's need. Why? Because he's a man of godly character. Not just listening to the story, he's going to do something about it. And we read that in the next paragraph in verse 8. It says that Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. As Boaz engages with Ruth personally, he starts to instruct Ruth not to go to another field. Instead, he extends her kindness by setting up an environment for her to work safely. It's not something that he is obliged to do. He, 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 he's not obligated to her uh, as, uh, uh, because she is someone who could give him any kind of benefit. Instead, we see Boaz extend that same hesed love, that same sacrificial, loyal, steadfast, at his cost for her benefit kind of love by providing her and for her needs in this moment. And we see Ruth's response in verse 10. It says, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes? She legitimately says, I don't understand why you're demonstrating this kindness to me. Why are you showing me this kind of love? That you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner. And here Ruth points to the fact that she is not from that place. She's not one of Boaz's people. And yet Boaz extends this love to her in a time where it was very dangerous to be a foreigner, an immigrant. And Boaz's response reveals to us why. His heart in verse 11. He says, but Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You know, whenever we read the story of Ruth, a lot of us grew up with this picture or this idea uh, that the story of Ruth is this incredible romance story. That Boaz is this strapping young man, handsome man, and he notices an attractive woman working and he wants to get to know her. He says, hey, Why don't you come and work for me? But that's not it at all. And we see that that is not what is motivating Boaz to extend Hesed love, loyal love to Ruth. Instead, he outlines for her and repeats back to her the reality of her crisis, of her circumstances first. He says that your husband had died since the death of your husband. Ruth was a widow. And in those days, it was extremely dangerous to be a widow. Widows were extremely vulnerable in those days. And truth be told, they're still vulnerable today. He continues, you were a widow. And then he says, you left your father and your mother. And as an unmarried woman, 
Ruth could have gone back to her parents' house to be under the care and under the shelter, under the covering of her parents as a child. But instead, she forfeited that and left her father and her mother. She was functionally an orphan. And in those days, orphans were extremely vulnerable people. And they still are today. So here was a woman who was a widow, and she was an orphan as she left her father and mother. And then finally he says, you came to a people, you left your native land and you came to a people that you didn't know. She was a foreigner. She was a sojourner. She was an immigrant, a refugee. She left her native land to come to a strange place. And in those days, it was very dangerous to be a foreigner. Foreigners, uh, immigrants, refugees were very vulnerable people, and they still are today. And so you see, the motivating thing that causes Boaz to extend Hesed love, extend loving kindness, steadfast, loyal love to Ruth, isn't her attractiveness, but instead it is her crisis. It's her need. Here, Boaz sees a, a widowed, orphan foreigner. And he says, you're exactly the kind of person that God wants to take care of right now. Why? Because Boaz is a man of godly character. He's a man of godly character because he knows God's heart. And he knows God's heart because he knows God's word. Whenever you hear those three things, widow, orphan, foreigner, sojourner, it should lead you back into God's word. It should lead you back into God's law. And no doubt Boaz knew God's law. God's law that expresses God's heart and values. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 through 19, it says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for who? The fatherless, the orphan, and the widow. And he loves the sojourner, the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. Love the foreigner, the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. Boaz understands the heart of God. And he understands the heart of God because he knows the heart of God. And he's extending God's steadfast, loyal love to this woman who is three times vulnerable. And Ruth's response she says in verse 13, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. But we see in the next paragraph, Boaz doesn't just leave it there. He's not just going to follow the letter of the law. Instead, he's going to go above and beyond. At mealtime, verse 14, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread. Dip your morsel in the wine, a meal that was meant for community. He was inviting her to his journey group. He was inviting her to take part in fellowship with his community. It was not something that the poor was, uh, was entitled to. Instead, he invites her in. And it says that he, so she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. It was an appropriate setting. You know, Boaz wasn't her new boyfriend. She didn't cuddle up next to him. She sat with the workers because that was appropriate for the time. And he passed to her some food, a meal, a gift. And she ate until she was satisfied and had some left over. And we'll see that it was left over intentionally so that she could take it home as a gift to her mother-in-law. And then verse 15, it says, When she rose to glean to go back and work, Boaz pulls his young men aside and gives them special instructions. He says, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not give her a hard time. Do not reproach her. Verse 16, and also pull out some from the bundles and leave 
her, uh, so, pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. And I love this. I love this so much because it reveals so much. Not just of Boaz's heart, but his creativity and his desire to bless Ruth, a woman in great need. Because we see uh, that this instruction was very particular. He says, I want you to invite Ruth to glean, to gather, not just at the fringes of my field, but right there in the, the heart of it, where you guys are doing the most work. And then he gives this very interesting instruction to pull out some from the bundles and leave it there for her to glean. And no doubt Boaz understood exactly what he was saying because he was a man after God's heart. He was a man of godly character because he understood God's heart and he understood God's heart because he understood God's word. In Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 10, one of my very favorite passages in the Old Testament, because it reveals so much of God's heart, it says this. It's instruction, it's law for the people of Israel. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyards bare, neither shall you gather up the fallen grapes in your vineyard. Instead, you shall leave them for the poor and for the foreigner, for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. It's incredible. It's like this was written just for Ruth. And you see in this moment, Boaz understood God's heart. In those days, it was literally against the law for you to gather up everything your land produced. And that's so hard for us in, uh, who, uh, who wrestle with entitlement in this very materialistic society for us to grasp, right? In those days, if you, work, if you worked for it, you were not entitled to eat from whatever you produced. You couldn't gather up everything you made. Instead, you were to give a portion to the Lord, your first fruits to the Lord. And then on top of that, you were to leave a margin and it was that margin that was God's provision for the poor. And notice it says that everything that falls on the ground, if your workers happen to drop something on the ground, it is literally illegal for them to pick it up. It is against the law for them to pick it up. And we see Boaz in his desire to love and care for this woman in need. What he does is he instructs his workers to intentionally drop stuff. And I love that. He's like, hey, listen, I want you to just be as clumsy as you possibly can. Ruth, as she's following along, these workers must have thought, man, what is wrong with Boaz's workers? They're dropping stuff everywhere. And we'll notice that at the end, she gathers up an extraordinary amount of grain because of Boaz's steadfast, loyal love. We see that Boaz demonstrates God's loyal love to Ruth extravagantly, Grace upon grace upon grace. In a season where everyone else was scrambling to take care of themselves, here's a man who's doing everything in his power to bless someone in need. The rest of the chapter, just to summarize, it says that she gathered up all that she could carry. She took it back to the city to her mother-in-law. And when her mother-in-law saw not just the grain that she gathered up, but also the gift of a meal, she is shocked, surprised. And she asks, whose field but uh, Ruth managed to find. Ruth explains that the man's name was Boaz and Naomi begins to celebrate this woman who had lost everything, who was in an intense personal crisis, starts to experience the loyal love of God from Boaz through Ruth. And in verse 20, she says this, 
She says, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has for, not forsaken the living or the dead. And the question here is, whose kindness is she talking about? Is she talking about Boaz's kindness or is she talking about the Lord's kindness? And the truth is, is it doesn't matter. They're one and the same. And we see this woman who literally just a chapter before changed her name because she was so bitter and angry towards God. Her heart start to change because she experienced loyal love. We see Boaz's loyal love begins to change Naomi's heart. And this, of course, sets up the miraculous rescue for Naomi and her family at the rest of the book. So what does this mean for us this morning and today? In the depths of our collective crisis. Well, for us who are gathered together, who are watching this stream, who are not Christians, you wouldn't say that you are. Maybe you just scanned through Facebook and you saw this live feed. Maybe someone else in your family is watching and you just happen to be listening in. Here is the reality. This COVID-19 crisis is not something unique or new. The fear, anxiety, uncertainty, and isolation that you feel, it isn't something that is caused by the pandemic. The pandemic only served to strip away that thin veneer of control and security you thought you had. This is the human condition. This is the way we are wired and lived, unfortunately. We are all broken by this sin, thing called sin that separates us from God. But the great joy of this story is that Boaz is a picture of another hero, another hometown hero of Bethlehem who would come for the poor, the lost, and the broken. Because the way this story ends is that Ruth and Boaz do end up getting married, and they have a son who has a son, and on and on and on. Ruth and Boaz's great, 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 great grandson who would be born also in Bethlehem, in a manger, who wouldn't just demonstrate the love of God, but who would be himself the love of God, who wouldn't just know his word, but would be the word of God. Jesus arrives, not just to demonstrate help in our time of need, but to be the answer for our sin sickness, to be the final answer for our desperate crisis. Jesus died on the cross to take away our sins. He was buried in the ground, and on the third day, he rose again, declaring once and for all that he rules over sin and death. And if this is something that you have not experienced, Jesus's steadfast, loyal love, then I invite you to accept that free gift today, to be restored to relationship with God and to have peace in your life. Secondly, for those of us who are Christians, the call here is to follow Boaz's example, to engage with our world of crisis and demonstrate God's loyal love. But I can hear you through the camera. I can hear you through the screen saying, how am I supposed to do that? I feel like I've lost so much right now. I don't know how I have the capacity to do that right now. 
And trust me, I understand. While Brandy and I were walking through this crisis with our son in the hospital, we were talking about how it feels like we lost one of our limbs, like we were walking through this life without our eyesight. And I was just thinking, Brandy and I were processing and thinking about how in this season, in that season for us while Shepard was in the hospital, and this season for us as Christians, it really does feel like we've lost one of our senses. You know, we have five senses. We have our touch. We have our hearing. We have our our eyesight, our smell, and our taste, those five senses we operate on and engage with our world through those senses. And it's like in this moment, we lost one of them. It's like we lost our eyesight and we can't see anymore. And by the way, if you feel that way, it's understandable. And it is okay to mourn the sense of blindness, the feeling like you can't see anymore. It's reasonable to mourn that for a time. But you know what happens to the body when you lose one of your senses? The body doesn't just give up and shut down. Instead, it amplifies the other four senses to lean into engaging with the world and to thrive. And I want to invite you right now, wherever you are, to just practice that. Just to experience that for a second. Close your eyes and mourn the fact that you can't see right now. But then take a minute to just be quiet and listen. What do you hear? Take a moment to take a deep breath and smell. What do you smell? The toast in the toaster? The coffee mug that's in front of, in front of you? Take a moment to pick up that mug and take a sip and taste. Taste that coffee or tea. Or taste and think about whether you brushed your teeth this morning or not. Take a moment and feel. Feel the weight of your clothes on your skin. Brush your hand across the fabric of your couch. Let it be amplified. Use your other senses and feel. This is the state we're in right now when it comes to loving our world, loving people. You may be familiar with the five love languages. Uh, we've got acts of service. Uh, we have words of encouragement. We have quality time. We have gifts and we have physical touch. You might be familiar with those five love languages. And right now in the season, as we think about these five ways we can engage our world with love, it feels like we've lost one of our love senses. And it's true. We can't really touch each other anymore because of this thing called social distancing. And while it's okay for us to mourn that for a season, for a time, the truth is, is that now is the moment for us to amplify the others. And Boaz is a great biblical example of this. We see it in this account in verses 8 and 9. Boaz sets up a safe, healthy working condition for Ruth to operate. It's an act of service for her. Osha would be proud. In verses 11 and 12, Boaz launches into great words of encouragement as he praises Ruth for her faithfulness to Naomi and affirms her character. In verse 14, we see Boaz invites Ruth to share in his journey group and spend some quality time with her. And in verses 16 and 18, we see him share gifts with, with Ruth uh, to take food to Naomi for them to enjoy. In fact, the only thing the text says that he doesn't do is the physical touch. He doesn't run up to her and hug her or give her a high five or any of those things because that would be weird. They are practicing social distancing, not because of a virus, but because they just met and that would be very uncomfortable and awkward. 
You see, Boaz doesn't need physical touch to demonstrate God's loyal love to Ruth. And in this case, for us, we got to experience that in our time of crisis. While our world is suddenly deprived of physical touch, we have the opportunity to lean in with the love of Christ in all these different ways, powerfully, enthusiastically, emphatically. Right now, dear church, there is no reason for our quality time to diminish. In fact, we can experience it even more so, not just with the members of our immediate family, but with people we've been long meaning to reconnect with. Zoom, FaceTime, phone calls, text messages, whatever. Play board games together online. Watch movies together. Don't tell me that we can't spend time together. Instead, pray for some creativity and lean in. Words of encouragement, phone calls, messages, social media, emails, even these things called letters, physical cards with stamps you can drop in the mail. All of these channels to communicate words of encouragement into each other's lives. Acts of service, there are so many people in need of help. Pray and ask God for divine creativity and vision to engage with them in acts of service. Go shopping for people. Offer to do yard work for your neighbors who can't get out. And pray for people. Carry them to the throne room of God as an act of service. And gifts. Guys, send each other gifts. Find out people's addresses and send each other's other gifts. Not just in order to bless people with cookies, although let me say, I love cookies. They're awesome. They're great. Greatly appreciated personally, but the truth is there is a real storm coming, a real dangerous one. Because once this virus abates, the economic crisis that's coming and is frankly already here will mean that we will need to step up, lean in, and be the church. Remember what the book of Acts says in chapter 4, verse 34, speaking of the ancient church, there was not a needy person among them for as many were, uh, uh, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Gifts of food to provide for people in need. Gifts of dessert to provide for people in need of a happy moment. Or gifts of salad for people who are lamenting the fact that they don't know how to cook healthy things for themselves. Gifts of activities for struggling parents who are running out of things to do with their kids and are wrestling with the guilt of relying too much on screens. So many ways for us to demonstrate love. This was our experience, not in the COVID-19 crisis, but the crisis of our son who was fighting for his life in the hospital. Through challenges, through his open heart surgery, acts of service as people took care of errands while we were stuck at home and at the hospital. Quality time online with our journey group, Brandy with her sisters in Christ from our hospital room. Even our girls spending time with their friends on FaceTime. Gifts, not just in food deliveries, but also in just helping us pay for things. Little things like hospital parking. Gifts of activities for our kids. Gifts of clothes to dress our children in. And words of encouragement, countless notes, text messages, letters, cards, and prayers to keep our family above the water and remind us of what was true. All of this for 24 days, all the way up until the day we brought our son home.
home. This is how we reflect Christ's love to a desperate world. And now is the perfect time, the perfect time to join a journey group. Now is the perfect time to serve someone in their needs. Now is the perfect time to send gifts. Now is the perfect time to write notes of encouragement. Lean in, amplify and enhance those other love senses. Rise to meet this crisis with strange, loyal love. And when the rest of the world finds themselves with broken cisterns, let them see that our well never runs dry. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. And it's your loyal love that rescued us from the depths of our sin crisis to which there was no other answer. And God, now in this moment, as we've said before, Lord, may this be your church's finest hour. While we may mourn the loss of one avenue of demonstrating love, I pray, God, like Boaz in this story, like Christ, we would lean in with everything we've got to love people. Give us, we pray, divine creativity and vision to serve, to spend quality time with one another, to send gifts of, and to shower each other with words of encouragement. And I pray, Lord, that this would be a great testimony of your unfailing love, your loyal love for us. In Jesus' name we pray.